Hello, and welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines, people just like you working to understand viruses and how they affect you. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we are talking with postdoctoral researchers involved in coronavirus and COVID-19 related work so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackray, and I am hosting this podcast from America's heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. One of the major issues in SARS-CoV-2 research is the inability of the virus to infect laboratory mice. On October 7th, 2020, we talked with Dr. Sarah Least, a postdoc in the Barrick Lab at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, who helped to solve this issue by generating a mouse-adapted SARS-CoV-2 that induces severe lung injury and mortality in standard laboratory mice. Sarah received her master's degree in animal physiology at the University of Erlangen, Nuremberg, and her PhD in virology and genetics at the Helmholtz Center for Infection Research in Germany, studying the role of host genetics on susceptibility and resistance to influenza A virus. She then moved to the Barrick Lab to continue her studies on the role of host genetics for SARS coronaviruses. Thanks for having you on today. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks for having me. Um, so my name is Sarah Leist. I'm 34 years old. I'm originally from Germany. Um, and I came to the US in 2016 to join Ralph Barrick's lab at UNC as a postdoc. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in virology research? So um, virology classes were offered at my university. And whenever I could, I took them, um, even though they didn't count to my official score. I was just super interested in how these tiny specialized uh, machineries work and how they have an effect, a huge effect on, on humans. And so whenever I could, I, I tried to learn something about them. And that continued. <laughs> I was just fascinated. And can you describe in a little bit more detail sort of the exact steps that you took to get where you are today? I did my bachelor's and master's in Germany, um, specialized in, in animal physiology, um, where we kind of used viruses as tools, but um, not as the main research interest. And I liked it a lot. I liked working in the lab. Um, I struggled a lot with the writing part of my thesis. Um, so I thought it's just maybe not the thing for me. And I tried to find a job in industry or somewhere where I can only be in the lab and someone else does the writing part. That didn't happen um, because for that, I was just too expensive, too much um, education behind basically a tech position that I was looking for. So I more or less uh, was forced to do a PhD, <laughs> which I'm very thankful for in retrospectively, but um, uh, that wasn't my plan. It just happened. And it took about one and a half years into my PhD until I really learned to enjoy it, embrace it, and I was, the happiest kid <laughs> after that. And how did you choose the Barrick Lab? So I did my PhD with um, Klaus Sugard um, using flu to understand more about host genetics with a special um, breed of mice. It's the collaborative cross. And um, I 
I was sure I wanted to do a postdoc. And I always tried to go abroad and I always didn't do it because of other people. Um, so I always took a step back and decided based on not my own interests, but on circumstances that life throws at you. And this time I was like, no, I'm, I'm gonna do this now. And Ralph's lab was really the perfect place for me to go. I basically upgraded my virus from BSL2 to BSL3. And um, the mice of the collaborative cross are bred at UNC. So instead of having to import them, I just moved where they are bred. Um, so now it's across the street instead of across the ocean, which is perfect. Um, so it was really the, the only um, logical choice. And um, I'm super happy to be part of the Barrick Lab now. Can you tell us a little bit about what you were working on before the COVID pandemic hit? I was um, coming from flu and host genetics. Um, I was basically hired to continue that, but switching viruses from flu to SARS. So I was working um, on characterizing the collaborative cross mice after SARS infection and following up on, on QTLs, on quantitative trait loci that we identified. We identified um, interest in candidate genes. And so my main task was to follow up on those interesting hits that we got. And can you tell us a little bit about what you've been working on since COVID and how, how did you get into it? So um, we knew early January about that it might be a coronavirus. And of course we got interested in it um, as everybody else. Um, and soon it, it was uh, common knowledge that it doesn't infect mice. The human strain doesn't infect mice. So as a mouse heavy person, um, I was interested in, in joining that project. And I teamed up with, with Kenny Dinan, a grad student in the lab. And we said, okay, um, we somehow wanna make this happen that we can do research in mice. And you have two um, ways to go about that. You can either change the host or change the virus. Um, we changed the host for MERS, which is the, the best model we have, but not the most optimal model, because when you think about um, knockout mice, you always have to cross them with those specific mice. So we wanted to go the route of adapting the virus. And um, Kenny is an awesome grad student, super smart. So he came up with the idea of um, changing amino acids in the SARS, in the human isolate um, to make it more likely to infect mice. And basically my part was more on the mouse side in the BSL-3. So I infected mice with the virus Kenny generated. And um, it was very exciting when we saw the first titers in mouse lungs. Um, and then we went from there. And can you describe a little bit how you've had to sort of advance it even further? So what have you done since that first isolate to make the system even better? So the first um, virus that we created is able to infect mice, but it doesn't really cause um, hallmarks of disease that we, as we see it in humans. 
And ideally your model organism or model system should reproduce as many phenotypes as you see in humans. Um, so what we did was we passaged the virus through serial lung passage in mice, meaning we infect mice with the virus and harvest the lungs um, two days later and infect the next round of mice with that, um, with that lung homogenin. And we, I don't know if we got lucky or if it was just the perfect conditions, but after 10 passages, we um, saw weight loss in the mice, which, which is uh, um, the main easy accessible parameter to tell if mice get sick. So I was very excited about that. Um, and we plaque purified from there and um, since then characterized that passage 10 virus which um, produces uh, acute lung injury-like um, histology phenotypes. The mice get really sick. Um, they have a decreased lung function. So really a good model system to, to study SARS-2 and also to evaluate medical counter measurements. So I guess in general, what was the most exciting moment that you've had in science so far? I think um, it was really the moment when I saw the plaque assay results from those mice. Because it, it was a, an educated guess with the, the amino acids we changed. Um, it's only two, um, but we were hoping for the best. But when you see the results and you know you, you um, generated something that can infect mice, it opens all doors afterwards. Um, so I think that's my moment. <laughs> it was really exciting through all the craziness that happened around that time in, in uh, everybody pri everybody's private life and the world. But then you see, okay, we, we found a way and there is a chance that we can get somewhere where we can um, um, investigate that virus and, and find some solutions to that huge problem. And sort of conversely, what was the most difficult thing you've had to overcome as a scientist so far and how did you overcome it? I think one major part, which is not directly related to science, is public speaking. I'm not the most uh, outgoing uh, person, I'm more of the introvert scientist. And public speaking was a big deal for me. I always got comments that it looked confident and calm, but inside I was dying. Um, so that was definitely one big thing, which um, people tell you it gets better over time. I'm still super nervous, but I think you learn how to cope with it and seem confident, even though you're super nervous. Um, that's one thing. And I think the other, <laughs> other thing, which is also not really related to science, was um, the whole move to the US, including all the visa paperwork. And it was, it was difficult times to get a visa um, in 2016. And, and since then, it's a lot of paperwork involved. <laughs> And what did you think about the differences between um, where you had been and where you were in the US? 
I think the first few months I was more occupied with learning how to live as an adult here. Um, I moved here all by myself, so there was nothing, I, nobody I could rely on. Um, so I had to figure out how credit cards work because they work different. I didn't know that. Um, and uh, where you have to go for which kind of uh, form or document. That was definitely a challenge in the beginning next to the science part. What about the lab environment? Um, not that much, to be honest. Um, it's, it was rather similar. Um, I, when I joined the Barrick lab, um, most like 90% of the lab was American. So that was new to me because my lab in Germany always consisted of at least 50% um, foreign students and postdocs. So that was kind of a surprise, but I think the Barrick Lab at that time was kind of an exception. I think in general in the US, it's also that you have 50% um, foreigners. And then if you had a chance to ask your older self, so say you 60 or 70 years old, you're getting close to retirement, one question, what would it be? What would you wanna know? That's difficult. I, I have a bunch of questions, <laughs> but um, I guess one of the main questions I think uh, most postdocs run through at some point is industry or academia. Um, I love academia and I want to stay. Conditions are not always perfect. Um, and it's just a question about what makes you happier or where are your preferences. Um, having a uh, a defined workday from nine to five would be good sometimes. Um, but I like the freedom that we have in academia. You can design your day as you want. Um, and I really appreciate that. And I'm willing to take a salary cut for the freedom I get. Um, and the freedom to, um, as long as you can get funding, you can study whatever you want to. And in a company, you might just be asked to improve a certain drug and if you find the cure for cancer along the way, you might not be able to follow up on that. And so uh, I'm still in academia. I'd like to stay. Um, we'll see how, how it will work out in the end. <laughs> um, how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected you as an individual? Me as an individual, I guess, uh, I spend more time at work. Not that I didn't work before, but it's a lot more. Basically, um, the whole lab was working seven days a week, many, many hours per day um, since, since the pandemic hit. Um, it's, it's a very exciting time. It's also tiring. The excitement lasts only for so long um, and you have to sleep at some point and you need to um, have phases of rest because um, otherwise it's just not gonna work out. But um, yeah, uh, since January, February, um, our, like every lab member's um, life is focused on work. Follow up on that. Um, what do you do? do you, are, you, are you managing to find some free time for yourself? And if so, what do you do to sort of relax and stay sane during all of this? Not too much free time at the moment right now, <laughs> to be completely honest. Um, we, me and my partner, he's, um, 
he's working now also on Corona, which he wasn't before. He, he has a commercial lab. Um, so even our private talks focus a lot on the virus, um, which I sometimes have to stop because I also need to talk about something else at some point uh, during the day. Um, but we, we try to take time whenever we can with mouse work, it's, it's rather difficult um, because you need to weigh them daily. So you need to be in lab, you cannot leave and go on a short vacation. So um, we managed one time during the pandemic, we managed to have an 18 hour vacation at the beach where we stayed separate from everybody else. It was just 18 hours, but it felt like a two week vacation. Um, it was really good. <laughs> and so I guess to follow up on that, as a virologist, how do you make decisions about how to keep yourself and your family safe? I guess there weren't that many situations where I had to judge because um, the whole year was basically I'm at work driving there in my own car. Um, I took public transportation before, um, so that was definitely a change. Um, and I'm glad we have the possibility to, to um, get parking spots now, um, which I didn't have before, like I didn't, I didn't apply for that before because uh, public transportation here in Chapel Hill is free. So why would I? <laughs> um, but um, we have that now. Um, and then it's just going home from work, work and going to the store, not every day because you forgot your sugar, but trying to keep it to a minimum. Um, and there were situations where you can get tempted. Um, we were invited to a wedding, but it's, it, it was too, too dangerous. I mean, we, um, both me and my partner, we cannot get sick at all. Um, like, it would just um, uh, take us out of work, which, which right now is, is not the time to. Um, so we drove by, <laughs> dropped off our present and went home. Um, that was just the, the logical decision, um, the thing to do. It, yeah, um, when, when you hear about wedding, like when you have bigger outbreaks, most of the time it was a wedding and looking at the people at the wedding, it's understandable why. I mean, you, the music is loud, you talk close to each other, you talk to the bride and the groom, talk to everyone. So um, it's just very difficult. And, and so we decided against it. And um, I assume your family's back in Germany. How are they handling the pandemic there? Germany does really well. I think um, part of it is um, how politics dealt with um, the pandemic. Um, our chancellor, she's a physicist herself. Um, and I think she gave the best explanation of our not that I have ever heard. Um, understandable for non-scientists too. Um, so it was just very well communicated. Um, and my family, uh, my mom is very thankful uh, for my early warnings 
I basically before masks were sold out, I was like stock up on this and um, get some hand sanitizer. And they even um, downloaded the CDC recipe to make hand sanitizer themselves. And they stocked up on all the, all the material. Um, so she listens to me, which I'm very thankful for. And she, um, she uh, told me that um, <clears throat> she tells everyone, um, I'm gonna go back to normal life whenever my daughter tells me it's safe to do so. Uh, so I'm very glad um, you can have an influence um, on other people, on people you care about with knowing the things you know um, and telling them, be careful, don't get distracted or um, convinced that it's safe. I don't see it, um, so still be careful, uh, especially um, my mom um, is also in an age range where it can be potentially dangerous. So you wanna be extra careful. Um, but other than that, I think Germany as a whole dealt really well with it. Um, she's, she's always worried about me when she hears about a new outbreak, um, then she's, she's always checking and seeing how I'm doing. <laughs> Have you found that you've been communicating more, you know, by Zoom and things like that? We're not using Zoom. Um, even before the pandemic, um, we we had video chats because it's just more personal than than just voice chat. So uh, we were using different apps on on the phone um, just to stay in touch, and and it helps to to see your loved ones once in a while. So I'm on uh, a regular once a week call with my mom. And if that doesn't happen, she gets concerned. Um, so that, that was before and, and even more after. But um, I think uh, people learn to trust scientists. And I, I get a lot of questions from friends that were not in science, not majorly interested in science. And they're like, hey, aren't you working on that? Um, can you tell me, is that safe? Can I, do I have to disinfect my groceries and, and stuff like that? Um, you get more questions from people that usually didn't really care what you were working on. <laughs> so great. Uh, I guess we're winding down. Um, any last messages for our listeners? Any thoughts about the future of the COVID-19 pandemic? So we're now, what, eight months or so in, we're heading into the fall and the winter. Any last thoughts? Um, something I would like to uh, recommend for everyone is get your flu shot. Um, we don't know um, how it's going to be. Um, I always recommend to get your flu shot, but this year especially, um, we don't know about co-infections uh, between the two viruses, how it will affect each other. Um, and I think we just need to be a little bit more patient. Don't give up on, on um, wearing masks and uh, washing your hands. Um, it has an effect and not only on you, but also on everyone around you. Great, well, thanks so much for being on. Sarah's past interest in virus-host interactions led to her recent work developing a mouse-adapted SARS-CoV-2, which will be vital to ongoing efforts to understand how the host 
interacts with SARS-CoV-2, as well as identify new countermeasures. This has been Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackray, and thanks for listening. You can find us on Google, Apple, and Amazon Music Podcasts or at lmtv.podbean.com. If you are a virologist interested in sharing who you are and what you do, please contact us at letusmeetthevirologists at gmail.com.